Hey there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Ray Zimmer. And welcome to Albumatics, a podcast where we discuss and analyze a musical album of our choice. Ray and I got to talking about what album we wanted to do this week, and we settled on The Beatles' 1963 debut album, Please Please Me. Okay, Ray, so the podcast has finally come to The Beatles at last. Finally, yes. How did you discover this band and this album in particular? Uh, it was pretty much like baby formula for my mom. Mm-hmm. For us, I mean, Beatles were always on there. She had like every album they had when I was a kid. And of course, she always listened to like classic uh, radio, rock radio when we were a kid. And so if you were in the car, it was The Beatles or Old Motown. So, I mean, that's it's part of my childhood. I, there was inescapable. Even if I didn't like it, there was probably something that I would have known. <laughs> Yeah, same for me. It begins yeah. with my mother. She was possessed by Beatlemania when they were going strong in the yeah. 60s. She had most of their albums, and I'd look at the album covers. She didn't play the Beatles much, though, after I came along, because huh. she had moved on to artists like um, mm-hmm. Simon and Garfunkel, Elton John, Cat Stevens, right. then later on, Billy Joel. Mm-hmm. So I was aware of them like most of the planet was for the longest time without knowing well much of their music. Yeah. But whenever you heard talk of popular music in the 70s and 80s, the Beatles usually became part of the discussion, as they were undoubtedly the most popular and influential band probably in history. Mm. At some point, I decided I want to check them out. I heard enough about them, and I suppose I just want to know what the fuss was all about. Mm-hmm. So this is when I was in high school, and I got the cassettes of the Red and the Blue albums. They were like greatest hits compilations. Oh, right like the Red one had the earlier period, and right. then the Blue one had the later period. It turns out I knew all those songs, and I liked them. Mm-hmm. I myself caught a mild case of Beatlemania, and then I started collecting the, the albums proper when they started being released on CD. And there you have it, right there. Do you have a favorite Beatle? Yes, I guess. I've always kind of liked John. Yeah. Contradictory and fucked up as he is. Yeah, yeah, no, you? without a doubt. Um, it's got to be George, man. Yeah, and, that's, yeah. and I'll talk about that later. That, that but it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Yep. Now I'm going to divulge some basic facts about this album. And when we cover the Beatles, we're covering the UK versions that were first released on CD, so we're not getting into the American albums with the different track listings. So, Please Please Me is the debut studio album by the English rock band The Beatles, released on March 22, 1963 on the Parlophone label. It was produced by George Martin and was recorded on September 4, 1962, as well as February 11th and February 20th, 1963, at EMI Studios, London, England. It reached number one on the UK Albums Chart and is certified gold by the BPI and certified platinum for CD sales by the RIAA. And here's the band's lineup card for all you space aliens from another planet who may not know who the Beatles were. (laughs) John Lennon on lead vocals, backing vocals, rhythm guitar, acoustic guitar, harmonica, and hand claps. Paul McCartney on lead vocals, backing vocals, bass guitar, and hand claps. (laughs) George Harrison, backing vocals, some lead vocals, lead guitar, acoustic guitar, and... Hand claps? Hand claps. (laughs) They got the clap. And finally, Ringo Starr (laughs) on drums, tambourine, maracas... Hand claps? And some lead vocals. Oh, Now we're going to do a track-by-track analysis of this album. We lead things off with I Saw Her Standing There, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon.
One, two, three, foul! <laughs> Ray, what do you think about this? Yeah, I saw her standing there, and then I just kind of walked away. No, <laughs> no. I saw Tiffany standing there after her oh, horrible boy. cover. Oh, boy. <laughs> I saw him standing there. I saw him standing there. Shut the fuck off. But, to um, a shopping mall near you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I figured that was her deal, right? Yeah. Hey, this is a, this is a solid rocker to open up the, the, uh, the album with. I mean... It's 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 not a straight rock album all the way through, but I mean, it's, if you're gonna do like a rock and roll song, this is this is definitely a catchy as hell, and I think it you know it deserves its place in rock and roll history as for being a good song. Yeah, the first track off the first album, it's one of my favorite Beatles songs ever. It might nice. even be in my top ten. Wow. Paul sings the lead vocal. In general, whoever sang it was the guy who wrote it, usually the principal songwriter. Mm-hmm. Though they were much more collaborative in the early days. This song was originally titled Seventeen. Paul wrote the chords and changes on acoustic guitar and then finished it up with John a month later at Paul's home. It's a fantastic bass line, which Paul directly ripped off from Little Richard's song, I'm Talking About You. I listened to it, yeah. He, oh, it's he, he just no for no, huh? Just nicked the bass line and <laughs> admitted it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know, they say mature artists borrow, or was it immature artists borrow, mature artists steal outright. There you go. So they're heading that way. <laughs> Paul also throws in his Little Richard woos. Yeah. Which oh. He's very good at. And oh, yeah. He nails that. The lyrics are direct and uncomplicated, supposedly inspired by Celia Mortimer, whom Paul was dating at the time. He sees the girl, falls in love at first sight, and they dance all night. Pretty uh, simple. You know, this is 1963. Yeah, 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 no. There's, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of space for the, the Virgin Mary between the two of them. Probably. Yes. <laughs> Hand claps add to the energy of this jumping little track. It's full of hooks, and the Beatles announce their arrival. Wham, here we are. Nice. The next track is Misery, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And incidentally, I'm putting Paul before John because the original album released in Britain had Paul's name before John's. Everybody knows it mm-hmm. as Lennon McCartney. Yeah, that after this album, thing. that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But for this podcast, for this album only, I'm going to say McCartney Lennon. Straight on. I'm the kind of guy who never used to cry. What do you think about this one? This is my favorite one on the entire album. I mean, this one, this is like one of those albums. I got to profess, I knew the hits off this album, but I didn't really dig deep in their stuff, so I had to do some research for this. All right, and uh, the vocal line is great. The, the harmonized misery part is friggin' awesome, and um, the little piano part flourish that uh, George Martin puts in there. Yep. It's kind of funny, like, it kind of reminds me of, and I'm sure The Cure listened to a lot of Beatles, and in fact, like, Robert Smith has said he was a huge Beatles fan, but that reminds me of Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me era Cure. Okay. And I'm sure there's, like, a direct lineage from this to that. Yeah. And so, that, this one... Well, you can probably find a direct lineage from this to a lot of... Oh, for sure. <laughs> a lot of yeah. yeah. I know what you're saying. But, yeah. but yeah, no, this this is my, fa- my, my favorite pick of this album is this one. Very nice. I do like the shared vocals. They mm. harmonize so well. Yeah. Uh, John's mixed a little bit more up front, though. I read that both of them wrote this song for British singer Helen Shapiro after her manager suggested they write a country and western song for her. Mm-hmm. So they started writing it backstage at a gig, and they finished it at Paul's home. When they turned it in, the manager didn't like it, so another singer, Kenny Lynch, recorded it, but it didn't chart. And this was the first Beatles cover ever recorded because oh, of nice. that. 
It's got a different vibe from the first track. It's more of a downer. It's got a bit of a country tinge, but it doesn't sound like a country tune. No, not by. I'd say more like Everly Brothers kind of the thing. There we go. Yeah. The lyrics again are simple and direct. He lost the girl and he's sad and miserable. It's the shortest track on the album at one minute, 49 seconds. I I didn't even realize how short it was. So let's continue with Anna, Go To Him, written by Arthur Alexander. this one uh this one's good too this was like okay like from what i've heard about this album is like they kind of like base it on their live set right yes so this is when you're planning a set for any type of show you're doing and that's like the, the shows i have done you always kind of like kind of you're gearing it towards certain songs for certain part of the night and right. this i can picture as being like kind of like the end of the night kind of bring them down kind of a song all right everybody's kind of doing whatever so i could like almost picture them playing this in germany at some like military club right and just trying to you know slow things down a bit the guitar part is hooky as hell. Yes. And the, the, uh, the quality of John's vocals, I like this because, you know, he's, he kind of crosses that border between pleading and at the same time, then just kind of giving it up. It's like, all right, you know, it's not going to work, so yes. go to him. So I think that's cool. He yeah. sells it. Yeah, this is a cover of a single by American soul singer Arthur Alexander. And it was a personal favorite of John's. Basically, mm-hmm. John wanted this. Paul and George's background harmonies are excellent. The song's got a slow, loping rhythm. It has the soul tune feel of the original. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Though Arthur Alexander's vocals are smoother. I listened to the original, and he was a soul singer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The lyrics are, the narrator gets asked by his girlfriend Anna to let her go with another guy who loves her more, and even though that's not true and it'll break his heart, he tells her to go with him. There's a zillion songs written about this topic, and the Beatles do a good job with this. I agree. I like this one, too. Yeah, and it's funny. That's, that's a lot of early rock and roll. Cars and girls. Yep. and Or boys. And, and it's kind of. a strong start to the first album. Yeah. Moving on, we get Chains, written by Jerry Goffin and Carol King. Chains, my baby's got me locked up in chains, and they ain't the kind that you can. Okay, Ray, lay it on me. I love this song. This is like, when you see like movies, this is like your classic 50s sock hop yes. kind of music in the background. Yep. It's a testament to the genius of uh, Jerry Goffin and Carol King, who I'm, I'm a huge Carol King fan. Yeah. So, and I'm glad that they actually gave her some exposure on this album, which is really cool. It's another cover song written by the famous husband and wife songwriting team of Goffin King that was recorded by the Everly Brothers and never released. Oh, okay. And it became a hit for American R&B girl group, The Cookies. George is taking the lead vocals on this, and he does a pretty good job. Oh, yeah. Like you said, it's got that 50s rock and roll vibe. Mm-hmm. Nice vocal harmonies by the three main singers, as usual. The lyrics are a little bit different this time about the girl's love being so constricting. It's like the guy's bound up in chains and he wants to break free. Mm-hmm. Ringo has cool swinging drums. John plays some intro harmonica. 
It's not my favorite, but it doesn't suck. It's a good tune. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of funny, too, because, like, that's what you don't think, like, people don't really take into account with the Beatles. Like, they were, like, eating so much American music at that time. Even the girl groups and stuff oh, yeah. like that. Like, the Shirelles and the Ronettes. They were huge fans like of the girl groups. Yeah, and it, it comes through in this album on a yep. couple tracks. It sure does. And now it's Boys, written by Luther Dixon and Wes Farrell. about this one i think we talked about this a little earlier and you nailed it it's this is a big ray charles ripoff yeah um, it is but you know that said um i, I actually do like ringo's vocals like i was just yeah. telling you earlier i thought this was john doing it trying to sound more american <laughs> when the first time i heard it until i looked i was like oh that's fucking ringo well, yep. well good on him my only complaint about this song is we need more george harrison i mean yeah. he's got some of that carl perkinsy kind of cordy solo stuff and of course Maybe guitar solos, except for unless you were like Chuck Berry or B.B. King at the time, the guitar solos weren't becoming quite, they weren't as big then as they were becoming like later on with your Clapton's and your Hendrix's. Sure. And even yeah, your, you're looking later in the decade. Yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, but, you know, I'm a huge Harrison fan, so I, he, but we do get a little snippet of that. We yeah. We do get some snippets. So it's a tasty George Harrison chord solo. Sure. And let's be honest. That John, Paul, and George do not make good Raylettes. Yeah. <laughs> if, they're, if we're going to do like an homage to Ray Charles, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, guys, you're not the Raylettes. Yeah, <laughs> it's the third cover tune in a row on the album. Okay. This one was originally performed by the Shirelles, a popular American girl group, and releases the B side of their single "Will You Love Me Tomorrow," which everybody oh. knows that one. Right, right, right. Ringo Starr, baby, he's got a pleasant voice, and he's game on this, makes a good effort. Yeah. They alter the lyrics a little bit to My Girl Says When I Kiss Her Lips, you know, switching genders. Yeah, well, you know. He wasn't going to sing, you know, I'm kissing the boys. <laughs> the lyrics are lightweight, my girl digs me, all the girls love the boys kind of thing. Right. Plus, he's drumming as well, and fuck the naysayers. Ray, Ringo Starr's aces on the drums. Oh, yeah, I, I have no problem with Ringo whatsoever. He has a feel, he has a swing, he was perfect for the Beatles, so anybody who says that Ringo sucks... And there are a lot of people who. Oh yeah, there's there, yeah, there's a lot of naysayers yeah. out there, but I, fuck that. Yeah, it, his. I mean, even if say okay, maybe he wasn't a Keith Moon or something like right. that. But how many guys picked up the drumsticks because of Ringo right. and like went on to become fabulous drummers? So probably got, more than who picked them up because of Keith Moon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there you go. Like we said, the problem is it very closely resembles Ray Charles. What I say, especially mm-hmm. in the chorus, so I, I get turned off a little bit. Yeah. I'm sorry, Ringo. This is my least favorite track on the album, and thus it's dubbed Aaron's Stinky Stinker. <laughs> but I really have no problem with this track. It's fine. Right on. We move through the album now with Ask Me Why, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Misery, ask me why. I say I love you. I, 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 I should never, never, never be 
your thoughts. Ask me why we put this on there. I don't know why they did. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's, there, there's like two or three songs in this album, which I call the cocktail party pieces, and this is the first of the, <laughs> of the Unholy Trio. This is like Don Draper hanging out, like slapping his secretary on the ass kind of music while he's like sipping a martini and, you know, talking about an ad he's going to run. This will uh, be definitely Ray's unimpressed musical piece, or musical pick, if you will. It's all right, but, you know... It's, it's kind of too cocktail-y for me, and John's vocals, there's a couple times where it just gets too rock for it, and it didn't fit, it wasn't like smooth enough for right. that, so it just, there's just two, two different type of things going on there, and so, yeah, this definitely gets my thumbs down. Yeah, well, we're back to a Beatles original, and this mm-hmm. was primarily written by John, mm-hmm. and he does, like you said, he sings the lead on it, it was inspired by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. Oh, nice. It's actually kind of complex with jazz chords and shifts in rhythm and feel in the verses. There's also a slight bossa nova beat yep. in the drum pattern mm-hmm. in much of the song. The vocals are well performed with the, you know, woo woo woo, you know, woo 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 woo. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. The lyrics are, I'm so happy that she's mine. I can't believe I'm so happy I'm going to cry. It's <laughs> schmaltzy. Yep. But hey, it's the first album. I mean, you know, and they were playing this in their live sets. Mm-hmm. The Beatles were always thinking about vocal arrangements when they were composing. This, again, isn't a favorite, but there's nothing wrong with this. It's good for me. All right. Now it's on to the title track, Please Please Me, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Okay, Ray, what do you think about this one? Oh, this is a great song right here. Um, yeah. I like how the guitar, the harmonica line kind of like go at the same time. I was wondering, is this an oral sex reference, this song? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or am I just 14 years old? You definitely can see it that way, right? <laughs> please please me like I please you. Because <laughs> it's better to receive than, or give than receive. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that yeah. one. I, in my notes, it says, the Beatles, <laughs> did the Beatles write about oral sex, John, you dirty dog? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the, come on, come on. Yeah. Of course, yeah. that kind of seals the deal for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> uh, John primarily wrote this thing trying to write a follow-up hit to Love Me Do. And it was originally at a slower tempo, mm-hmm. as it was inspired by Roy Orbison and Bing Crosby, of all people. Wow. But okay. George Martin heard this and he suggested speeding it up, which opened mm-hmm. the song up and made it hit material, which it was. Hell it was yeah. the Beatles' second ever single, which reached number two in the UK and number three in the US. I dig John's harmonica hook. Yeah. And Ringo plays those steady swinging drums. Yeah, it's like hard players go. He, was, he wasn't any. Okay, put a directional stick. If you want to hear really good British blues hard playing, Brian Jones on um, "Not Fade Away" is yeah. killer, or even Mick Jagger's later work. But he's a solid—he's a solid player. He uses it tastefully. Yeah, John and Paul both sing those great harmonized lead vocals, and the lyrics seem to be about that the guys trying harder in the relationship to make it work. But there's also a dirty component to the lyrics. <laughs> I know what he's trying, trying to make it work. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> her flute playing abilities. <laughs> To me, this track shows how the Beatles are already mastering the pop forms of the day. I've always dug this track. Right on. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on Love Me Do, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. 
What's not to love about this yeah. song? It's uh, yeah. I'm not, it's not simple by any means. Well, I guess it's it's kind of it's kind of a simple easy Pretty song. Simple. But yeah, but uh, his harmonica work once again, John Lennon's harmonica work is solid on this. You know? Yeah, and I think you do said this is really kind of what sold the song to Martin originally, wasn't it? Yes, this is an old Paul tune. It was written when he was 16 after he skipped school. Oh, this is the Skiffle era Paul. Yes, and John later added the middle eight section. The main bulk of the song are two fucking chords: G7 and C. <laughs> That's nice. it. And then it just moves to D in the middle. Yep. That's what John added. John's harmonica is a highlight. It hooks you immediately. I mean, oh, yeah. It, and I've heard this song performed by mm-hmm. cover bands without the harmonica, and it's not the same song. Oh, that's got to be garbage. The harmonica is the hook of this song. George Martin suggested that he try it. Okay. So that's why that got put on there. George Martin gets a lot of deserved credit for his work with the Beatles. Prior to the song, he wasn't impressed with their own material, mm-hmm. and he wanted them to record a Tin Pan Alley song called How Do You Do It? But the harmonica transformed Love Me Do, and it became the single. I love the vocal melody, which is harmonized so well by Paul and John. Oh, beautifully, yeah. The lyrics are as simple as it gets. I love you, I'll be faithful, love me back, love me do. <laughs> because Ringo was new to the band, his timing wasn't down yet, according to George Martin. He was replaced on drums by session drummer Andy White, with Ringo playing tambourine. <laughs> Though a version of this with Ringo is out there. Also, this actually was first recorded with original drummer Pete Best, and that's also out there, too. You can I would find love it. To, I would love to hear that. Yeah, George Martin didn't think he was a good studio drummer, though. And by oh. then, the Beatles were already thinking about replacing him, and oh. they had Ringo in the band by the time they came to recording this track. This was the Beatles' first single. It reached number 17 in the UK and number one in the US in 1964. Well, well done. So, you know, it came out later on in America, but yeah. it hit the top spot. I fucking love it, do. <laughs> do you ever picture them saying, Love me, do? <laughs> love me, do. <laughs> Next up is P.S. I Love You, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Treasure these few words till we're together Keep all my love forever P.S. I love you this one this is the second of the uh cocktail songs from your cocktail party songs for me and <laughs> I, I honestly i prefer this to ask me why yeah um i do too everything from like the, the chord progression which itself if you just take it on face value it doesn't seem like a complicated chord progression but when it gets to the u u u part and you yes. say just goes on the b flat yep. that changes the song modally completely from the original key yes and uh i think that's like a pretty good indicator of where the beatles are going to be heading songwriting wise they're not going to do your typical one four five rock songs down they the toyed line. with different chords and it, yeah. it set them apart from other groups at the time. Mm-hmm. Paul sings lead vocals on this and it is mostly his song. It was written in Hamburg, Germany while the Beatles were busting their asses playing long gigs with multiple sets. Mm-hmm. Paul himself described it as a letter song written to a girl expressing he loves and misses her, a chick song, and Paul denied it was written about a specific person. 
The drums got a Cuban cha-cha feel, and they were played by Andy White again with Ringo on maracas this time instead of tambourine. Yeah, the rim clicks are good. Yeah. The, the, the rim clicks are really are. good. Definitely authentic sounding for sure. Yep. But thankfully, this is the last time we're going to hear from fucking Andy White. <laughs> this was the B-side to the Love Me Do single, and it's so good. Yeah, you can tell. This is like when they were using this in their set list. It's like, okay, we want, like, this is our, our slow dance couple. Yeah. We want this so, like, you know, they can do their thing, and then yep. we'll change it up afterwards. Yep. Continuing on now, we come to Baby It's You, written by Mac David, Barney Williams, and Burke Bacharach. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Oh, many, many, many nights go by. I sit alone at home and I cry over you. What can I do? Baby, it's you. Ray, how about this one? As I've talked about many times, having played some of his songs, now I've got more of an appreciation for Burt Bacharach as I've gotten older. Yeah, this song is—it's good. It's uh, definitely shows their girl group influences on yes. here, and um, it's got a weird solo break in there. Yeah, what is George Martin playing in there? I know he's playing something different. It's called a Celesta. A Celesta. I didn't expect it, but it, it's tasty. Yeah. It's nice. It's a keyboard instrument. It looks like a small upright piano, mm-hmm. but it produces that ringing sound. And that's another like the whole the sha la 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 la. Yeah, corny, but they're cool as hell. Yes. So um, yeah, no, well, it's, yeah, that's a girl group trademark. Yeah, right? yeah. This is a definite dance number. Yeah. It's the second song by the Shirelles on this album, actually. The original was a single that reached number eight in the U.S. The Beatles had a fondness for American girl groups, and their early material drew heavily from them in their vocal arrangements. John Lee's vocals affecting, and I dig the backing vocals again. Cheat! Cheat! Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know? <laughs> That's right. I didn't know that it was a Shirelles thing, but yeah. like that, that definitely I could picture that in the yeah. back, back of my mind. The lyrics are of the, they say you done me wrong, but it doesn't matter, I love only you variety. Oh, there's some Buddy Hollyisms in here, sorry. But yeah, yeah but yeah. it's like, oh, that little yeah. hiccup thing. Yes. And, you, and you, Buddy Holly was huge in the influence for them. Absolutely. So. Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, yeah. and, what's, well, and the girl you, groups. How can you not go wrong with Charles Hardin as an influence? Exactly. Overall, this one's okay. It doesn't knock my socks off, mm-hmm. but it doesn't drag the album down either for me. Word. So let's proceed with Do You Want to Know a Secret, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? Whoa, whoa, closer Let me whisper in your ear Say the words you long to hear I'm in love with you Listen Ray, what about this one? This is the third in the unholy triumvirate <laughs> of cocktail party songs. And truth be told, I had completely forgotten about this song until I was researching this. And this is one of those ones that was like, I heard it, and like all of a sudden I'm sitting in the back of my mom's Volkswagen Beetle in 1978. Yeah, and because it was like it was like one of the like every other Beatle song, you know. Yeah, and this, yeah. Every other song was a Beatle song, classic rock radio, and that, and that that song would pop up. I still like it better than Ask Me. Why. Yes, I do too. Have to say, so that's all I have to say on this this one. Yeah. This one was mostly written by John. It was inspired by the song I'm Wishing from the Disney movie Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. No way. Yeah. 
It's a simple lyric of I've got a secret for you. I love you. Don't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. John claimed after he wrote it, he knew it was a good one for George to sing Mm -hmm. because it only had three notes and he wasn't the best singer in the world, though he has improved a lot since then. Fuck you, John. (laughs) I know. George's vocals what sells this song for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. Smooth. Smooth as silk. Yeah, I love yeah. all his little vocal affectations and nuances, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. He promised not to tell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. He does all these things. Close up. Yeah. They don't say care. Oh, yeah, that's right. The, that's little, the, the liver puddly and yeah, stuff he, comes he, out. The musical backing solid as always. I, I have a soft spot for this song. I really do. And it's because of George Harrison. Yes. This was released as a single in 1964 in the U.S., and it reached number two, so suck on that, John. Word. Okay, now we come to A Taste of Honey, written by Bobby Scott and Rick Marlowe. think about this cover tune it's kind of a funny history with me in this song like because i'd always heard that herb alpert and tijuana brass kind of thing in the background but like i didn't make the connection between the two like he's doing the same song titles until i heard it the beatles version and then i heard the vocal line i was like yeah. oh wait they're doing they're doing that but they're doing it in waltz time it's different I, I, the guitar work itself is actually pretty tasty and clean yeah um, so i mean it does have some things going for it but uh yeah i still can't clean the uh herb alpert <laughs> Out of the back of my mind. Yeah, this originally was the instrumental track written for the 1960 Broadway version of the 1958 British play A Taste of Honey. Oh, okay. It's unknown who provided the lyrics, though it's thought to be a guy named Lee Morris. But the song was recorded by many artists, and the Beatles took their inspiration from American singer Lenny Welch, whose version came out in September 1962. Okay. It's a pop standard, basically. Yeah, yeah. The lyrics are about a guy missing his baby's kiss or something else if you're of a dirty mind. <laughs> Could be our second, like, uh... Know about that taste of honey. (laughs) Yeah. And he promises he'll return for her and the honey. (laughs) Paul delivers a strong lead vocal. He's always loved the sappy, mushy stuff. Oh, yeah. He pulls it off. He's he's always been good at that. Like you said, it's in Walt's time with a 4-4 middle 8. I read the Beatles didn't really want to record this. As they wanted to do their own songs, I'm with you guys on that. (laughs) Did Martin strong arm them for this one? (laughs) Uh, Yes. For me, it's another okay track. I think Wayne and Garth put it best in a different reference to something. It cleanses the palate. Yeah. It's a little different. It's a yeah. little something like, whoa, what just happened there? Yeah. But that, that's okay. The penultimate track is There's a Place, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. this one this is another favorite of mine on on this album it's cool because like the beatles were supreme 
melody writer, supreme hook writer. Absolutely. And this Especially is, Paul. Oh yeah, yeah, without a in doubt. In my opinion. And this this showcases that. And the way they yeah. harmonize the vocal line throughout is awesome. Harmonica playing, super tasty. Yes. And when I thought was listening to this, I was like, why does the vocal line sound so familiar? I think Cheap Trick nicked some of it for Surrender. Yeah. And I was like, okay, that's cool. That, yeah. If you're going to steal from Buddy, then steal from I never made that connection. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, no. Because I'm a huge Cheap Trick fan. Okay, well, then there you go. Yeah. And you know, Robin Zander, I've read comparisons between him and like yeah. some of the Beatles stuff. Oh, yeah. So that well, makes sense then. Cheap Trick openly admitted how massively influenced they were by the Beatles. I mean, that's basically what power pop is. It's just oh, kind of yeah. turned up. This was inspired by the West Side Story song Somewhere, which has the line, there's a place for us. Oh, okay. It's more John harmonica and phenomenal two-part harmony with John on the low harmony and Paul on the high harmony. Yeah. The lyrics are a bit different for the time, though, as, as the place they sing about is in the mind. It's contemplative, retreating into your mind to think about your life, dreaming in isolation. You didn't get many lyrics like this in no. 1963. No, know? most certainly not. This song kind of foreshadows somewhat that the Beatles were not a typical pop group and they would be willing to try different things, you know, to capture different sounds and moods. I really dig this one, man. They were deep thinkers. <laughs> yes, they were. And that brings us to the final track, Twist and Shout, written by Phil Medley and Burt Burns. Ever heard this one? I'm not 100% sure, but this may be a hit for them at some point in their future. They may want to put this one out there. Yeah. Once again, what's not to love about this song? Yeah. I mean, John Lennon's vocals are like, those are really ragged, raw vocals, and uh, it's completely rock and roll. This was first recorded by the R&B vocal group, The Top Notes, and then the Eiley Brothers recorded a version of it that reached number 17 on the U.S. pop chart and number two on the U.S. R&B chart. And I would say that the Beatles version is the most famous, I think. The people yeah, know. yeah. John famously blew out his voice on it. He brings it everything he's got. He had a cold at the time that they recorded mm. this album, and he was drinking milk and sucking on cough drops to soothe his throat. George Martin knew this one was going to kill John's voice, so he saved it until last to record. This is the last that, one they recorded. That's a that. smart move on, yes. on their part. It's the last of the ten fucking tracks they did at that session. <laughs> John said it took a long time for his voice to recover from it, too. Mm-hmm. The vocal buildup is incredible. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, that's oh, it's so good. And the track is loud and energetic. Even the end, shake it, shake it, shake it. Yeah. It's pound, do, 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 do. I love that. Um, I always remember this for the famous scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I was just going to say, that actually came, it briefly brought it back because I remember watching Friday Night Videos and they like yeah. did a video from Ferris Bueller of that song. Yeah. And with the little solo breakdown, you always picture that one guy at the steps of the museum in Chicago pointing and shaking his yeah. ass. And I saw that at the theater, the movie oh, in the theater, too. and it, yeah. the, it got the, cr- the the theater crowd was into it too. Oh, that, big that, time. that particular scene, it was really good. This is for Cameron, a man who thinks he hasn't seen anything yeah. today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's also a dead ringer for La Bamba. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the contours shake. Um, do you, do you love me? Yes. Yeah. But they they blend it perfectly. So it's a, they, I, I would call it inspired borrowing to take a term from Alex Golnick. I'll go with that. Yep. This was released as a single in the U.S. in '64 again, and it hit number two. You know what kept it off? What's that? Can't buy me love. Oh really? <laughs> 
another Beatles song. It's a classic. I love it. Who doesn't? Yeah, I know. It's a perfect closer. Now that the track by track is finished, we'll get into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, the rating is a zero to five system, with five being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a zero, which sucks harder than a Dyson vacuum. (laughs) The Beatles, here we are, starting off our reviews of them with their first album. Ray, what do you think about this one? All right. In the context of, like, great rock and roll albums from the beginning, from, like, Louis Jordan stuff to present time, I'm going to give them a four. I think this is an album that reflects a hard-working band that's been paying their dues. And, they really uh, did, too. It, it's sweaty. It's on uppers. It plays seven shows a night. And you can tell, you can tell how tight they were yes. at this point. So it's a great rock and roll album, but I'm going to stick with four because it's an indicator of where they're going to go towards Yeah. before they get to, like, you know, Rubber Soul and the White Album and, and the other ones I think would be definitely be fives. Yeah. The bulk of this album was recorded live on Monday, February 11th, 1963, from 10 a.m. to 10.45 p.m., less than 13 hours later. It's one of the most remarkable recording sessions in history on a two-track recorder. They threw on the earlier singles and had an overdub session, and bang, you got your album. This made an immediate impact on the U.K. charts, and it stayed on there for 30 weeks, being eventually displaced by With the Beatles, their second album. But this band didn't come out of nowhere. Mm. In July 1957 in Liverpool, England, a kid named Paul McCartney joined John Lennon's skiffle group, The Quarrymen, as a rhythm guitarist. In February 1958, Paul invited his friend George Harrison to watch the band. He was younger than everyone else, but he finally won John over and joined the band on lead guitar. Nice. Everyone else left, and John, (laughs) Paul, and George performed as Johnny and the Moondogs, playing (laughs) rock and roll when they could find a drummer. John's art school buddy Stuart Sutcliffe joined on bass and suggested the name The Beatles as a play on Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Okay. Oh, nice. They changed their name for a little while to The Silver Beatles and finally back to The Beatles for Good by August 1960, when they also hired Pete Best as their permanent drummer. The Beatles played multiple residencies in Hamburg, Germany, where they played their balls off and built a huge following. Oh, shit, yeah. Between those residencies, they played the Liverpool Club Circuit and were getting more and more popular at home, too. On the second Hamburg residency, Stu Sutcliffe's German fiance Astrid Kircher, I hope I pronounced that correctly. I think you got that right, yeah, from what I've read. Cut his hair in the style that the band would make famous, the mop top. <laughs> she also was a photographer and took the first pro photos of the Beatles. Huh. Stu decided to leave the Beatles for art school, and Paul switched to bass. Now a four-piece, the Beatles met Brian Epstein at one of their gigs at the Cavern Club in Liverpool in November 1961, and he became their manager two months later. He also tightened up the Beatles' act, on stage and off, to act like professionals and mm-hmm. put them in suits and all that. Right. In mid-August 1962, the Beatles replaced Pete Best with Ringo Starr on the drums, right. and the lineup was all set. Now, I just skimmed over a very quick history lesson of the Beatles. It doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what they were all about. There's so much fucking information about this band that it boggles the mind. I bet you could find a book that'll tell you what George had for breakfast on May 10th, 1964, (laughs) if you wanted to. I don't know. If he had a fever that day. Probably. There are also tons of podcasts about the Beatles, and I highly doubt there's another band that comes close to the number of shows dedicated to them. Mm. So we're not adding anything to the story that anybody doesn't know or couldn't easily find out about. I'm just giving the context to how this album came to be. And as far as this album goes, I won't lie, it's my least favorite Beatles album. Not because it's bad, on the Mm. contrary. I like a lot of the songs. It gives tiny glimpses of the greatness that will rapidly come in the next few years for this group. It starts strong and finishes strong. And I like all the hits off this record, but this probably has the biggest ratio of songs where I kind of go, yeah, it's okay. Mm -hmm. I give Please Please Me a three. 
And anyone who really loves this album or thinks it's one of the Beatles' best, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. I still think it's a great album. Don't get me wrong. This is the one that started it all. And holy shitballs, Batman, does this story <laughs> take off like a rocket not long after this record comes out. So cool. hang on tight. We got a five-star iTunes review from R4 Podcast super listener Sam George. Sammy! About last week's Pantera episode. Nice. This time he writes, Great podcast again. Ray lays down some music theory for us. As a player, I appreciate that. Aaron is as knowledgeable as anyone about rock and metal music and proves it every week. Oh, yeah. Pantera has been one of my favorite bands since I heard this album in the early 90s. Dime is in my top five metal guitarists of all time. Vinny is a monster. R.I.P. Diamond Vin. Thanks, guys. I love it. Sam. Thanks again, as always, Sam. And to any listeners out there, we love to get iTunes reviews. They really help us out. They help out the show. So keep them coming. And beyond that, we really do appreciate all the support from all of our listeners. And we thank you for taking the ride with us. Or you can send us questions. Or you can just send us a haiku that you wrote. Or throw money. Or money. Money's good, too. Yeah, yeah. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast at places like iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. So if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review of it. If you take the time to do that, we'll read your review right here on the show. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com and also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast, including the Album Addicts branch of the show. You can also review the show on Facebook if you'd prefer to do it that way. And yes, we'll read your Facebook review on the podcast. You want to come on the podcast and talk about an album with us? Shoot us an email and we'll set it up. We're always looking for co-pilots to host the show with us. And we would also welcome any requests or suggestions for albums to cover. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for Album Addicts, I'm Aaron. And I'm Ray. See ya. And remember, you can't eat your pudding if you don't eat your meat. We should save that for a Pink Floyd episode. Oh, yeah. Maybe I'll scratch that. (laughs) The lyric is about the guy... Holy fuck me. <laughs> the tarantula enjoyed a flight to the You're going to pick a Beatles original. I know, I gotta say it. Epic fail. Finishing. Chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs>